from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The Egyptians were like, no, this is not yours. We have received independence from Britain this year, and this is not what we're doing. So there was this fight back and forth. We get these very uh, male-centric, male-heavy stories. And they're also white-heavy and white-centric stories about discovery. Places like the British Museum, who have less than 10% of their um, collections on display for the public, that's really problematic. You can't fix the situation. You can't go back and make anything better. But what can you do now to try to repair some of that? These things sort of like get in your head and they're sort of in this in the consciousness of a lot of Egyptologists even that practice today. I'm Jonathan All. When people who work in the same profession get together socially, they often talk shop. Whether it's at the water cooler, at a trade conference, or on a Zoom call with colleagues, the social influence on our professional lives, and vice versa, play an important role of both. But there are some cases where that social interaction changes everything, not just about our jobs, but also how we see a part of the world. That's the crux of a new book by Kate Shepard, a history professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology, Tea on the Terrace, Hotels and Egyptologists' Social Networks, 1885 to 1925, looks at how that shop talk changed archaeology and our understanding of ancient Egypt. Dr. Shepard, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So what got you into this tiny little piece, or maybe it's not so tiny, this little piece of how we got to understand ancient Egypt better? Oh, gosh. So, um, well, I do, I'm a historian of science, but I focus on the history of Egyptology, which people frequently sort of say history of Egyptology. But what it is, is looking at the the practice and the practitioners of Egyptology in this particular period. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what happens when you're sort of, and, and I'm a biographer, so what happens when you're reading biographies and notes and diaries and letters, you find that um, a lot of the letterhead is the same. It's from Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo, or somebody is talking about, I went to meet this person at the Continental for tea, and here's what we talked about. Um, and so these these things sort of like get in your head, and they're sort of in this in the consciousness of a lot of Egyptologists even that practice today. Um, and so that was kind of on my mind. But when I, so I lived in Egypt um, from 2010 to 2011, and um, that was during the the Egyptian Revolution happened in January of 2011, and it went for quite some time, but it really started on January 25th. And it was down in Tahrir Square. Down in Tahrir Square is where you have the Egyptian Museum. Um, you also had the um, National Democratic Party headquarters. And you have uh, several hotels because it's right there along the Nile River. So the Nile Hilton is right there. Um, it's just recently been refurbished. Um, but the Ramses Hilton is this really tall sort of brown tower um, with the blue Hilton logo. You cannot miss it. It's right behind the museum. So after the revolution and after things um, sort of uh, the the square was um, sort of clear of, of the bigger uh, protests and things, um, I was walking around down there um, with a friend and just sort of looking around. And by that point, the Democratic headquarters had been burned out by protesters and sort of rightly so. And so but right next to it was the hotel. And I sort of started thinking, wow, there's this one extremely political place, which is the party headquarters, and this other really political place, 
which was the Ramses Hilton, which is where a lot of diplomats had stayed when they were meeting with, you know, party leaders and things like that. Um, and I wondered why one had been burned down and the other hadn't really been touched at all. And then I start, and then these like sort of dominoes just kind of start to fall. And I started thinking about Shepherd's Hotel, which had been burned out in the revolution in 1952, which effectively kicked out the British um, and brought Nasser in as the leader and he nationalized everything. Shepherd's was one of the first things to go on the first day of the revolution because it had been this symbol of British authority and colonialism in Egypt almost since it had been built. Um, and so that's when I kind of started thinking, what are Egyptologists doing in these spaces very specifically? What are they talking about? How are they forming the discipline in these um, uh, really informal places? And how is that going to impact their work once they get out into the field? So I, I didn't know if there was going to be very much out there on it. Um, there is, but it's like a lot of diaries. It's a lot of, you know, letters. It's a lot of reading through a lot of that kind of stuff. So that's, that's how it got started. That's how I started thinking about it. What do you think you learned about Egypt and the way that Egypt was studied by writing this book and going through all the materials and writing this book? Um, a lot of Egyptologists understand how the discipline was built in uh, a, a colonial infrastructure, basically. Um, so 1882 was the um, bombardment of Alexandria by the British. Um, the French were supposed to help, but like at the last minute, they sort of bowed out. So it was the British actually firing on Alexandria from the HMS Alexandria um, and burning out the entire city. I mean, it burned for days and weeks. Um, that was also the same year that the Egypt Exploration Society was um, founded, right? And it was a few months uh, after or before, I forget. They were within a few months of each other. But that bombardment and the fact that the English took over control of Egypt, essentially, from that point in 1882, opened up sort of the political landscape, the social landscape, the economic landscape to the English. So they could come in a lot more freely. Tourists would come in more freely. And so when you have more tourists coming in, you have more people coming in with more money. These people go, look at these beautiful big monuments. I'd like to do something about that. Um, and so if you have money and you're interested, especially, well, this was back then, if you have money and you're interested, you could sort of pay to play, right? You could go to the Department of Antiquities and say, I would like to excavate in this area. They needed money. They needed things excavated. So they said, great, we will set you up with an archaeologist. You guys go and, and you do this digging. And of course, I'm simplifying this mm -hmm. quite a lot. Um, but that was sort of, it's what some people call the golden age of Egyptology. But you really, um, one thing that I really try to point out and draw out in this book is for whom was it a golden age? Because you've got these hotels going up, you have tourists coming in, you have infrastructure being built, electricity lines laid, telegraphs, um, rail lines, safe travel up and down the Nile. Um, but at what expense? So who was doing the building? How much were they getting paid? Not much. Um, how much were they getting fed? Again, not much. Um, and it, it tended to be the Egyptians, right, who were the ones suffering. And then the, the white Europeans coming in were we're making a lot of money and a lot of good name off of what they were doing. So what what ends up happening, and um, I had I was showing you the the book copy, but on the on the front I chose an image of Shepherd's Hotel from the 1920s, and they have this terrace that is literally raised up off the street level so that 
the Egyptians who are walking by cannot be on the same level, right, as the people who can afford to stay at Shepherds, which tends to mostly be the, you know, white Europeans or Americans coming in to to do the tourism. So it really are they really sort of set themselves up these as these exclusive institutions where if you want to discuss what's going on in Egyptology, you're not going to be allowed in unless you have money or have a connection or something like that. You have to be not Egyptian. Uh-huh. Yeah. To be able to Pretty much. be in these conversations about Egyptology. Yeah. How, how do how do you think we should contextualize all of this in in present day looking back on it both through the lens of there was some amazing work that was being done yeah. that really advanced our understanding of one of the great civilizations of the ancient period but also it was done in a colonial way that was resource extraction cultural resource extraction antiquity resource extraction how do we complexly look at both the amazing benefits of what happened and how it was all done in this kind of horrible context? Yeah. Ooh, that is something a lot of people are working on right now, actually. It's a huge cultural heritage question. Um, and I have colleagues, uh, especially in Britain, who are um, looking at this question of um, uh, what can we like, what can we do now um, to possibly uh, and you can't fix the situation. You can't go back and make anything better. But what can you do now to um, try to repair some of that? Um, there are people who push for return return the pieces. Uh, places like the British Museum who have um, less than 10% of their um, collections on display for the public. That's really problematic. Um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, in New York is also problematic, but they have over 90% of their collection on display. So you kind of go, okay, if some people sort of argue, okay, if we can see it, at least maybe that makes it worth it because maybe more people can get to New York than can get to Cairo. Um, so there's all of this, um, there are all of these questions and I don't know the answer to it. I'm not going, I can't, I don't have really the expertise to sort of fully answer that kind of question, which is why um, I think looking at the history of these, of the, um, the foundations of some of these disciplines will help, hopefully, some of these people answering these questions. The, the parts of the book I was able to read, they, you, you seem to, it's written in a very academic way, obviously, uh, but I still sensed that you had kind of the feeling that you would love to have been a fly on the wall mm -hmm. at some of these teas on the terrace or a dance yeah. in the ballroom or et cetera. Yeah. But you were also kind of repulsed by <laughs> the fact that they were going on in the way they were going mm -hmm. on. I am so glad that came across. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard not to fall in love with the people that you write about, but also you sort of you are reading some of the things that they're saying about the Egyptian population and, and it it breaks your heart, right? Or you see the, you know from other stories what is going on at the same time. I think a lot of the uninformed people, when we think about the um, mostly British people that were doing the archaeology at that time, we think of men with monocles and big mustaches and those yeah. like HMS pinafore type helmets mm -hmm. um, with names like Throckmorton. Um, but there were women involved mm -hmm. and who did a lot of great work and sadly and unsurprisingly were not credited for it. That's right. Um, Emma Andrews was wealthy herself. She was actually a wealthy widow by the time she was traveling with Theodore Davis. 
Um, they were they were likely um, lovers, partners, um, but Davis was still married to his wife Annie, um, and so they. Uh, but Emma Andrews had moved into their Newport home, um, and like Davis and Annie didn't talk to each other directly for decades. The way rich people did that sort of thing. Yeah, and and it was like everybody knew that they were like yeah. you know together, but nobody would really say anything about it. So. She was his cousin or sister or family member or traveling companion, but she was really rich, and she split everything with Davis, at least boat-wise, furniture-wise, all the things they had to do for Egypt, Um, and she paid for some excavations herself, like without even Davis's help. Um, There was a guy named Percy Newberry, and he had wooed Andrews and Davis into paying for some stuff, Um, but Davis was done with Percy Newberry when he was allowed to dig in the Valley of the Kings. And Emma Andrews said, don't worry, I will pay for your next two years of excavations myself, um, and here's here's how we're going to work it. And usually, if a man was paying for excavations, it would have been his excavation, and he would have gotten credit for it. Um, but Emma Andrews was paying for Newberry's excavations, and so Newberry just sort of thanked her on the, on the acknowledgement page, and that was it. Like, thanks to Emma Andrews for, Mrs. Andrews for, you know, paying for this or whatever, and then not giving her any credit elsewhere. And Davis never gave her any credit. It sounded like, though, that while Davis was focused on pillaging to get fame and money, she at least did some work to try to catalog and and do things that are closer to what are standard practices in archaeology now. Yeah, and um, that she was the only one doing so. So um, in the book, I had actually recreated a map that she had drawn in her diary, and it's the only known map that we have of what was actually in the tomb at the time and how it was found. And archaeologists still depend on it today for, you know, their studies of the tomb. So it's the record that she kept of who was coming in, who was seeing what, what day they were coming, how Davis reacted to them, um, how people were getting paid, you know, who was doing the guarding of the tomb at night. She kept all of those records, and that's how we know – I would say 75% of what we know about what Davis was doing because he didn't hardly publish anything. He didn't have to. So you you talked about how Davis did some very bad things, Mm -hmm. but there were some stories from your book where where the the tea on the terrace, those those meetings led to advancements and improvements in in science and the way that that people did archaeology. Yeah. um, So Davis wasn't all bad. Um, I'm not saying I want to be friends with him at any point in time, but he wasn't all bad. So... Uh, he would uh, he hired um, people who were very talented because he wanted his publications to look beautiful also. So there was a guy, Harold Jones. Um, he was a Welsh artist that um, actually what he does is, and he wrote a letter home about this, thankfully. He wrote to his parents, I know that the millionaire Theodore Davis is going to be at Shepherd's Hotel, so I'm going to go sit on the terrace at Shepherd's and wait for him to come basically, to come to dinner or whatever, and then I'm going to go find him, and I'm going to, you know, present my case for working for him. And he did that also down in Luxor um, at the at the Luxor Hotel and at the Winter Palace Hotel. Um, and so Jones, this poor artist who just went to Egypt because he, um, he had tuberculosis and he was trying to sort of ease those symptoms, he was like, okay, I'm an artist. I can get hired on somewhere because um, photography was really difficult to do at the time. This was, you know, 1903, 1904. 
Um, and it's really hard to get into the tombs for clear images. But he was a beautiful and wonderful, talented artist. And so he's like, I'm going to go get a job doing some of this. And so he did. Um, and he ended up dying, actually, when he was working for Theodore Davis and Emma Andrews um, and Howard Carter uh, and Lord Carnarvon uh, were at his funeral in Luxor and helped pay for his funeral. Um, those were the guys who uh, found King Tut's tomb. So Davis brought in these sort of young upstarts who were just hoping for a chance and gave it to them. Um, so there was some of that that was very good. Um, and then, you know, there were others uh, like James Breasted. And I did actually in this book focus a lot on American Egyptologists because um, very often when we do the history of Egyptology, we start with Napoleon um, in, you know, the 1790s. So we go French. The British came in not long after that, as you might imagine, because it's like if the French are doing it, the British won in on it too. Um, but the Americans didn't come in really until after the Civil War because, well, nobody had any money to do anything um, or to go very far. And so after the Civil War, people started, I think, traveling a bit more. So um, James Breasted was the first university-trained um, American Egyptologist. And he shows up to Egypt as this, like, young sort of, uh, I, I, when I was, um, you know, I have described him as sort of wet behind the ears in 1894 and he comes with his wife on their honeymoon, um, season and he takes a trip up and down the Nile with his wife and they have a blast and he, he's really focused on what he says, he, he wants to make himself an Egyptologist by going to Egypt. He has the PhD, but he has to go to the field to like really earn his chops. Um, and he trains with this, um, this guy, Flinders Petrie, who is like the, the sort of British father of scientific archaeology in Egypt, um, really big name. So Breasted's trying to connect himself to all of these really big people. So when he comes back to Chicago, that he has some leg to stand on and say, I know kind of what I'm doing. And he um, was also problematic, as you might imagine, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, but also... Um, he helped to uh, begin what's known as the epigraphic survey, and it's still running at the University of Chicago. So we have these beautiful, amazing um, uh, record of all of these sort of monuments, paintings, things like that, that have since disintegrated, and we don't have them anymore. So these are the only record that we have because it's really difficult to conserve a lot of this um, a lot of the monuments and the, and the paintings and things like that. Is it an overstatement to also try to highlight the collaborative effort? Like Carnarvon may be a name, mm -hmm. but there were hundreds of people that made that possible. Yep. Each of them had their own expertise. And it's really unfortunate that we, you know, we fight, we fall in great man history mm -hmm. seems to be the way that we like to talk about history. Yep. Not that we like to, that we have been conditioned to talk about it. Uh -huh. um, but that it was actually all these different people from different backgrounds with different specialties yeah. that led to this. Yeah. So, um, excuse me, especially with the King Tut, um, uh, the Tutankhamun one. So I actually end the book with that story because um, by the time we work our way up the Nile to Luxor, um, you could you could tell a really big, very, I think, interesting and complex story about sort of the European takeover of this ancient town. But the, um, the Tutankhamun story with Carter and Carnarvon um, is really indicative of this because you have Carnarvon, again, somebody who, a rich guy who came to Egypt to recuperate. Um, he was recuperating after a, 
um, motor vehicle accident, um, one of the first in Britain, but he had gotten really injured. Um, and so he came there and he was just like, wow, look at all of this stuff. I would like to pay for somebody to excavate for me. Um, and all he could get was sort of the outer skirtings of the Valley of the Kings with Howard Carter looking for him because Davis was doing all of the work in the Valley of the Kings. So Carter had to wait out Davis, finally makes his way into the valley. And Carter is is there. He's on the ground. He's he's on site every day. Carnarvon's not really. I mean, he's got – he comes every so often, and, and he comes to Egypt in the winters because the um, winter in Britain is, you know, wet and dreary and that hot desert air. Um, so he would come uh, every so often, and sort of Carter was like, all right, this is my final year digging for you because I, I haven't really found much for you. So 1922, like, if you just give me the money, I I will I will do this digging. Um, and that's when they found um, the tomb was that last was that last season that Carnarvon gave money for. So, yeah, so you've got Carter and Carnarvon. Lots of people recognize that name. Um, Harry Burton is a name that a lot of people might recognize because he took all the photographs. Um, he was working for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But once this tomb was found, it really was everybody who was in Luxor, um, who was British or American or whatever, um, they're excavating, converged on this tomb because everybody knew how important it was. Um, it was virtually undisturbed. It had been disturbed a couple of times, but anciently. So everything was fairly intact. Um, and everybody came in. So Metropolitan House that was nearby that they were um, they were excavating the Metropolitan Museum of Art just loaned everybody that they could to Carnarvon. Um, James Breasted was there. Um, he actually missed the opening of the tomb um, on one day. And when he came back through, Carnarvon was like, where you been? We're, <laughs> we really want you here. Um, and so James Breasted was with his son Charles, who actually played a journalist for a while um, during that whole time, um, gave himself an alias and everything, and was basically reporting from inside the tomb. And everyone's like, who is this guy? He's got like this, he's got this inside job. Um, so yeah, everybody, but it was men who were coming and converging. There were women there. Minnie Burton was Harry Burton's wife, and she was writing in the diary who they're meeting with, what's going on. Um, but there aren't, you know, there aren't a whole lot of, um, at least that I've really been able to find, women who were working on site for that particular excavation because it was so... Um, it was sort of an all hands on deck. Whoever's here needs to be here, kind of thing, um, and yeah. So, so we get these we get these very uh, male centric, male heavy stories, um, and they're also white white heavy and white centric stories about discovery and all of this stuff. But um, but you also have to tell the other side of the story, which is. Uh, Carnarvon thought that he was operating under an agreement where he would get several pieces from the tomb and he didn't he probably took some some were sort of finding that some things did proliferate more than we thought but um virtually everything went to the Egyptian museum after a year of a court case where Carter tried to lock the tomb and say nobody else can get in this is basically mine and the Egyptians were like no this is not yours we have received independence from Britain this year and this is not what we're doing we need to hold on to this for us um, so there was this fight back and forth, and the tomb itself, there's been loads written about this. Um, the tomb itself sort of became this um, center point of political um, and social 
um, and colonial, um, like it became sort of a battleground for that. And it was, it's a really fascinating case to look at from a number of different angles. What do you hope is the one big takeaway that someone would get from your book? Ooh, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, that, that the story that you hear, right, on your, um, which I think are very important, the um, documentaries, things like that, um, that's, that is for, um, for garnering interest. And what I want you to do is look a little bit deeper into some of those stories. So um, there are plenty of there are plenty of other stories that we can that we can go into. So a lot of the story, especially about Egyptology, is some of what I told in this book, right? You've got the Flinders Petries and the Howard Carters and all of that kind of stuff. But it's also the the um, servants who travel with some of these rich people, and they have you know their own stories to tell about what they're experiencing because it's completely different. So the surface looks really cool and shiny, kind of like King Tut's face mask. But then you remove those things and you really get down to sort of the nitty-gritty of who's, who's, um, whose mask is it, um, who owns it, and who gets access to it, that kind of thing. Tea on the Terrace, Hotels and Egyptologists' Social Networks, 1885 to 1925, is the new book by Kate Shepard, a history professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology. It's published by Manchester University Press. Dr. Shepard, thank you so much. Thank you. episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Avery. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.